The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Peter is bringing this letter to a close. And last week we saw as he drew our attention to the promise maker and the promise made. The promise maker being the God of all grace, the one who has himself called us to his eternal glory and the one who will himself fulfill his promise. And what's the promise made? That we will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established after we have suffered a little while. That is the promise maker and the promise made. And then in the last verses, we see a statement of praise and personal instruction. A statement of praise and personal instruction. The statement of praise is found in verse 11. Where Peter writes, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what is called a doxology. It is a hymn of praise to God. It's a, it's a passionate expression of praise to God. They, they are uh, regular. Every epistle um, closes with a doxology, uh, a hymn, an exhortation, an expression of, of praise to God. These are doxologies. A doxology is when you ascribe to God what is uniquely His. That's what you see in, in a doxology. Uh, you're, you're, you're ascribing to God, you're naming, you're declaring, you're um, acknowledging what is uniquely God, what He and He alone um, has, what He and He alone can do, how His nature is uh, unique from the nature of, of all other created things. In a doxology, what you do is you praise God for what sets him apart. That's what Peter's doing here. God is, as we saw last week and as, as Peter has just written, he is the God of all grace. That's who he is. He is the one who has called us. He is the one who has called us to his eternal glory. He is the one who will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, what, what Peter's done is he has described in, in a theological way the things that only God can do. Only God is the God of all grace. Only God is able to call us unto himself. Only God is able to give us eternal life. Only God is able to fulfill these promises to um, restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. What we see in verses 10, in verse, verse 10 is great, deep, theology. And what's happened is this theology, this truth about God has taken hold of Peter's heart and has brought forth from his heart doxology. 
Great theology leads to great praise. That's what we see happening here in the end of 1 Peter. Peter is praising God because of who he uniquely is. And this, Lord willing, is the result of our study through this letter together. That we have over these last number of months looked at deep theology. We've looked at deep truths about a great God and who he is and what he's doing and what he has done. And my prayer is that our response to this letter as we bring it to a close is one of praise, an overflow of praise, of doxology unto God. We've learned some things. We've seen some things together. We've been going through them this morning. Let's just continue to look and see what we've learned about God. We've seen in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What do we learn about God? We learn that he is a God of great mercy. He's a God of great mercy, of abounding mercy, of everlasting mercy, of never-ending mercy. He's a God of great mercy, and his mercy for us has been expressed in this reality that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That he's caused this to happen. That he is sovereign over salvation. And he causes us to be born again, a new spiritual life. But not just any kind of life, but a life that is now um, born to a living hope. A hope that is alive. A hope that is is. Uh, seated and secured in the person of Jesus Christ, who through the re- his resurrection from the dead has guaranteed and has granted to us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, un- unfading. And that that inheritance is being kept for us by our great God. And not only is our inheritance being kept, but our salvation is being kept as we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what we've learned of God. Chapter 1, verse 15, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What have we learned? We've learned that God is holy. He is set apart. He is altogether different than anything else in all of creation. He is spotless. He is without blemish. He is totally and completely holy. We saw in verse 20 that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We've learned of Jesus that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that he was in eternity past the plan of God. 
But yet God, by his grace and his mercy, has made him manifest, has made him evident, has made him clear to us for our sakes. So that now through him we can be believers in God. And our faith and our hope can be in him. We saw in chapter 2, starting in verse 3, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are we saying? That he is good. He is good. And that we can come to him being rejected by men, but yet in him finding a home, and not only a home, being a part of a home, being a part of a building, being built into a spiritual house so that we can be holy priests. That we can now, because of his grace and his mercy, offer unto him sacrifices that are acceptable. We see in verse 10 that we were once not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We've learned of God that he's a merciful God, gracious in giving mercy, and that he's a God who has created for himself a people. And he has, by his grace, grafted us into that people, even though we didn't deserve it. We see in verse 21 through 25, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our wounds, or bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers. Of your souls. Jesus Christ suffered unto the point of death. As he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to God. And God was faithful to him. And in that, Jesus has left for us an example of how to suffer and how to trust in a God who is faithful. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That our great and glorious, holy, sovereign God is seeking the righteous. And unbelievably, his ears are open to our prayers. We see in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh, but being made alive in the spirit that we have by the death of Christ now been reunited, brought back to God. We who were once enemies of God, now sons and daughters of God. We saw in chapter 4. In verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We saw in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's grace is multifaceted. We see in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We saw in chapter 5, he's the God of all grace. 
He's the God of all grace. He's faithful to his promises. And because of all of this and more, our hearts should overflow with praise. And we should join with Peter in saying, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a statement that is uniquely God. To him and him alone belongs dominion, belongs rule, belongs authority. To him and him alone. And so our hearts, because of all that we've learned, should overflow in praise to God. To him be dominion. Church, I so desperately want us to be a people who love and seek after Uh, Good, sound doctrine and theology. But we can never be a church that gets there and feels like that's all that needs to take place. Because that's not what we see patterned in the scriptures. We see good, right, deep, solid doctrine and theology that leads to a place of worship and praise for God. We cannot grow cold-hearted in our affections and our praise for God. But as we learn of him, as we see him, our hearts should overflow in praise to him. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then we read that and we think, well, I didn't even know Peter was praying. He just throws an amen in there. But that's not just the, the end of a prayer. That has meaning. When we say amen, it has a a meaning behind it. And it means let it be so. Let it be so. This is what Peter's saying. May it be that God has dominion forever and ever. May that be so. Well, he already has dominion. It's his. But may he have dominion over your life. May he have rule and authority over your life. May he have rule and authority over this church. May he have rule and authority over these churches. May he have dominion forever and ever over us. And let it be so, Peter says. This is the statement of of praise. And then Peter finishes with some personal statements. He writes in verse 12... By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now, why is this here? What's its its purpose? It serves a number of purposes. I think we're going to get to the to the real purpose here in just a second. But I, as I just think about it, it's just a reminder to me that that God, in His sovereignty has himself chosen human instruments to bring his divine and inspired word. And that's what you see here. I mean, Peter's a real man who lived in a real time and a real place and really wrote this letter. And he had relationships with people. And God had seen that these people played a part in what was happening in the building of his, of his church. And God has seen that Silvanus has, has had a, a part in this. What, what Peter is doing is he's, he's giving a, a statement of credentials. He's giving credence 
to the person who brought the letter to these churches. So there are some that believe that Peter dictated and Silvanus wrote. He may have, but it's certainly true that it was Silvanus who was the one who took this letter written by Paul and delivered it to these, these churches in modern-day Turkey, right? They didn't have USPS back then. There was no postal service. It had to be delivered. And so Peter wrote it, and he handed it to, to Silvanus, and he said, take it to these churches, And so here's this guy showing up with a letter saying, this is from Paul. Now, how do you know that this guy can be trusted? And how do you know this letter is is really by Paul or by Peter? I'm sorry. And Peter's giving him a statement of credentials to say, this is a faithful brother. And I have entrusted him with this letter. And the chain of custody can be trusted because he can be trusted. Now, who is Silvanus? Silvanus is Silas. Silvanus is the the proper name, the real name of Silas. Silas was the nickname. Now, you've probably heard of Silas. Silas was um, in the book of Acts a companion of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. Luke writes about him in Acts. In Acts, he's called Silas. Paul writes about him in 2 Corinthians, and then both of the Thessalonians, and there he's called Silvanus. And he has now met up with Peter, and he is hand-delivering this letter to these churches. And Peter has to say of him, he's a faithful brother. He's a faithful brother. So Peter says, I have written to you briefly. And you think, well, if he wrote briefly, why can't you preach briefly? (laughs) But hopefully you've seen over the last year or so that this letter, it wasn't brief. It is full of great and deep truths of God and encouragement for our souls. But Peter feels this is brief. Why does Peter feel this is brief? Peter feels that this is brief because of the subject that it's covering. Whole libraries could not contain the volumes that would explore the depths of and beauties of God and His grace. Whole libraries couldn't hold it. And so for Peter, this is brief considering its, its subject. God and His grace and His faithfulness in our suffering, how much more could have been written about it? But yet Peter keeps it brief. And then he gives us the main purpose behind his lever. His letter, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting and declaring. Exhorting is encouraging. Peter has been encouraging these believers in their suffering. And I hope that your heart and your souls have been encouraged as we've journeyed together through this letter. 
Isn't it amazing that now, almost 2,000 years later, this letter and its purposes are still true today? Isn't that amazing? But he says, I wrote this so that I could encourage and I could declare that this is the true grace of God. And here we are, halfway around the world, nearly 2,000 years later, looking at this same letter and, Lord willing, walking away from it going, my goodness, I have been encouraged as it has been declared that this is the true grace of God. And we, we come to this letter that was written to specific people in specific places at specific times with specific issues and Peter is addressing them, yet here we are today looking at this going, this is exactly where I find myself, and this is exactly what my soul and my heart needs. Isn't that amazing? Do you know why that takes place? Do you know why we can, all of these years later, halfway around the world, totally different circumstances, totally different cultures, totally different languages, do you know why we can come to this and still find the same kind of nourishment for our souls that these brothers and sisters did in the days that Peter wrote it? Do you know why we can do that? Because this is the true grace of God. That's what Peter says. I'm declaring that this is the true grace of God. This, what Peter says here, this is a very important and a rich statement. And it does a couple of things. The first is it places this letter clearly as a part of the God-breathed scriptures. Right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Peter says this, what I've written to you, this is the true grace of God. This is God-breathed scripture. And because of that, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. That's why we can come to it all of these years later and find in it teaching and reproof and correction and training for righteousness. Because this letter was and this letter is holy scripture. It is inspired by God. Penned by Peter, delivered by Silvanus, yet inspired by God, and because so, is holy and completely true. It is truth. It is the true grace of God. That's what Peter's doing as he says, I have written to you to encourage and to declare that this is the true grace of God. It places this clearly as a part of the God-breathed scriptures. The second thing that it does is it draws our attention to the overarching theme, not of just this letter, but of the whole Bible. The overarching theme of all of the scriptures is the grace of God. This is the true grace of God. 
plants it firmly in the canon of scriptures and shows us, tells us, reminds us of not just the overarching theme of this letter, but of the overarching theme of the entire canon of scripture, the grace of God. What you find in these pages, every one of them, what you find here is how we can be made right with our holy creator. That's what you find from beginning to end. How we can be made right. How we sinful, rebellious creatures can be made right with a holy creator. How we can gain access to him. How our relationship with him can be restored. How we can have strength in this life. And how we can inherit eternal life. In the next, they're found in the pages of Scripture. How is that possible? How is it possible to have these things? How is it possible to be made right with God? How is it possible to inherit eternal life? It is only possible by the grace of God. That means that I have a great need and you have a great need. And that need is the grace of God. Above and beyond everything else, our greatest need is the need of the grace of God. And it is grace that takes care of our past needs. It's the grace of God that takes care of our, our past needs. Those are our sins. It takes care of our sins. It's the grace of God that takes care of our sins. It is the grace of God that helps us in our present circumstances. It is the grace of God that secures our future state. Church, all of life is grace. From our birth to our second birth to our death, it's all the grace of God. And this is what Peter is doing. He is drawing our attention to the grace of God because his grace is what we need most. Now, this is an incredibly practical letter with practical instructions on real life issues, right? We all suffer. We all suffer. We all go through these issues. These are real life problems, relatable problems, and and real life answers and solutions. But guess what you do not find here? You don't find any self-help schemes here. They're not here. You don't think... You don't see how to think more positively about yourself when others malign you. Nope. It's not there. Right? there there's, there's verses that we've seen of what to do, how to handle when the world maligns you, when they speak negatively of you. That's, this letter's full of that, but not one time did you see, here's three steps on how to have a higher self-esteem when somebody talks bad about you. It's not there. You don't see how to have your best life now that is void of suffering. It's not here. You don't see how to know that what lies ahead of you in this life is better than what you went through to get here. It's not there. That's not there. 
That's nowhere in the scriptures, by the way. The best is yet to come, not a single place in the scriptures outside of talking about eternal life. You don't see here how to find fulfillment in your circumstances. There's no self-help schemes here. Instead, what you find is a spotlight on the grace of God and how it is greater than anything else we could ever hope to have. How it meets our needs in a way that nothing in this world can. How Jesus is greater than us and is worth giving everything for. That's what you find here. This is the true grace of God. And that is your greatest need. And that is my greatest need. That's why here, as long as I'm here, we're not preaching self-help schemes. We're going to preach the scriptures because in the scriptures it is the true grace of God. And that's your greatest need. And contrary to what can be popular belief in today's world, the grace of God is in and of itself, relevant. It meets your needs right where you are, regardless. It did it 2,000 years ago. It's doing it today. The true grace of God. Church, we need the grace of God. We need the gospel. And we need it every single day. Not just on the day of salvation. This is, I think, my favorite um, two verses in all the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What do we see Paul Doing What do we see Paul saying here? I'm reminding you of the gospel. That means they already heard it. He felt the need to remind them again. I'm reminding you of the gospel, which I preach to you, and how that gospel works every single day. You see it. Which you received, past tense. In which you stand, present tense. By which you are being saved, past tense. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. The gospel, the grace of God works in every part of our life. And we can't think that the grace of God and the gospel is only beneficial for that moment we're saved. It starts there. And it continues every day as we stand in the gospel. That's what Paul says. In which you stand. That's why Peter says... Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Over and over again, we've seen this exhortation to stand firm in the gospel. To stand firm in the grace of God. To be unwavering. To be sure. To be steadfast to be established as a world around us is shifting, as foundations are crumbling, we as the people of God stand firm on the sure foundation of the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, Peter says. 
And then verse 13, she who is at Babylon. Now, who is that? The she there is the church, and Babylon is Rome. She, the church, who is at Babylon in Rome, this is where Peter is as he's writing this letter. The church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, just like you, has been chosen. Because God's not only doing for these people what he doesn't do for other people. What God has done for these people is what God is doing for all of his people. He's choosing them. He's establishing them. He's giving grace to them. He's building his church through them. She who is at at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. This Mark here is John Mark, found in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And he's not literally the son of uh, Peter, but he is spiritually the, the son of Peter, the child of Peter, much in the way that Timothy was spiritually the son of Paul. And then verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Greet one another with the kiss of love. This is a holy kiss. It's, this is a kiss man to man and woman to woman. In the church, in the gathering, together. As you see one another, the customary greeting is showing deep affection for one another. That there should be, in their gathering, just as should, there should be in our gathering, deep affection for one another when you see someone you love, someone you care about. Y'all are all like me, probably, um, and I'm sorry that you are. Uh, you get... You, you get Sucked in, you know, the, the wormhole on uh, Facebook videos or YouTube. And there's one in particular, one, one genre of videos that just will get you, you know, and they just keep getting recommended. Here they come. And it's, uh, I was watching some this week. It's what made me think about it. I don't know how they come up. They just know me. I'm, I'm a sucker for these things. But when, the, when the, uh, the soldier comes to surprise family members, right? You ever got into those, just watching those? The deep affection. The deep affection. Greet each other with a holy kiss. This is this, this deep affection that should be cultivated among the church of God that we're happy, we're overjoyed to see one another. And peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Our gatherings should be marked with affection, with peace with praise, and with grace. That's what we just saw. And our gathering together should be marked with affection, with peace, with praise, and with grace. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.